0: Welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Welcome back to all my listeners. I took a nice long break to focus on some family time and me time while I contemplated the future of the podcast. I will still be doing episodes, but they're going to drop back to part-time as I seek other avenues of employment, while I continue to try to build a listenership for the podcast over time. So there still will be episodes, and for the time being, they will occur roughly every other day, but unless the business side of things changes, it's likely the podcast will take a back seat in my life for a bit. Speaking of, let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found on the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com, and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In the early 1900s, new technology was creating new crime. In 1908, Henry Ford's assembly line had created the Model T, and by 1919, his company had distributed the early automobile to roughly 3 million people. The introduction of such an expensive and movable item was an enticing target for thieves and auto theft in the United States was a major concern near the end of World War I. With peace in Europe established, American politicians looked to internal issues that needed to be addressed. Leonidas Karstaufen-Dyer was a U.S. Representative from Missouri who served in the U.S. Congress from 1911 to 1933. He authored several famous bills aimed at tackling crime and civil rights issues. After witnessing the horrific acts committed during the 1917 East St. Louis riots, Dyer drafted a bill that made lynching, a crime commonly committed against Black Southerners, a federal crime. This would allow federal prosecutors to investigate and charge those carrying out lynchings, as the crimes in Southern states often went ignored by law enforcement and local and state prosecutors. The Common Sense Bill was defeated by Southern Democrat filibusters for several years and eventually shelved. It wasn't until 2022 that a similar bill was finally signed into law. In 1919, Representative Dyer was able to get his motor vehicle theft law passed. The law made it a felony to steal someone's car and drive it across state lines. This closed a loophole that criminals used to steal a car in one state and sell it in another state as many states were slow to enact new laws for investigators and prosecutors when it came to auto theft. Over 100 years later, auto theft is still a major crime and some people have made a career out of it. In 2006, one man almost lost his life due to his lengthy history of stealing vehicles and another, this one innocent man, did lose his life. This is the story of Daniel Ott. Daniel Ott, the murder victim, was born on April 17, 1975 in Amherst, Ohio, and spent most of his life in Vermilion, Ohio, a town on the western edge of Cleveland suburbs that sits on the southern shore of Lake Erie. Daniel had a knack for growing things, and by 2006, the 31-year-old was a sought-after grower at many greenhouses. His reputation had landed him a new job opportunity in Michigan that was going to begin in June of 2006, but on the morning of May twenty-six, two 2006, Daniel was asleep with his girlfriend, Marianne Ricker, when they were awakened by their dog, Mulligan. It was 6.30 a.m., and they figured the dog wanted to go out for the morning, but they wanted wanted a little more sleep. Mulligan was insistent, and as they entered that groggy state during the morning wake-up, they realized why Mulligan was getting their attention. Standing in the room they were using as a bedroom was a man dressed in camouflage, wearing a mask, and holding a shotgun. The assailant asked the male victim his name, and he replied, Daniel Ott, and then ordered the couple to roll over onto their stomachs. The suspect first duct taped Daniel's hands behind his back, and when he moved to do the same for Marianne, Daniel realized the duct tape bindings were poorly done, and as he worked to free himself, he threw himself at the intruder. The armed man was able to fire a single shot from his shotgun, striking Daniel in the chest before fleeing the residence. Marianne called 911 at 6.35 a.m. and talked to Daniel as he fought for his life while the ambulance and police were on their way. Daniel slipped into unconsciousness and was pronounced dead after arriving at the hospital. Investigators talked with Marianne and learned that the suspect had identified Daniel before his attempt to detain both of them. It was clear that Daniel was a target and the killer had never met him before, so the crime had the makings of a murder for hire, but Daniel was hardly your typical murder victim. So we'll take a quick break here. We like to break down either the crime scene or information from Witnesses In this case, you have the surviving uh, girlfriend. It also referenced her as a fiance at times. But the crime itself, the fact that somebody broke into the house, it was clear that they weren't trying to commit a burglary. And then when they asked Daniel for his name, that indicated to investigators that this guy was looking for a specific target. Because if you're breaking into a random home to commit even a random murder or home invasion robbery, something along those lines, you're not going to take the time to ask the person what their name is. So it was more of a confirmation question that the guy had who he was looking for. And I guess because of the fact that Daniel rushed this guy, there, there could be some indications. This was some other type of crime that just turned into murder, but regardless of whether he was targeted for a kidnapping or targeted for murder it it ultimately ended in this murder so just based on the that little bit of information that's out there it was going to be pretty clear to investigators early on that we're talking about some type of a murder for hire but as i mentioned this is not your typical murder for hire victim Daniel Ott lived in a spare room at the plant nursery he worked at. His upcoming move to Michigan was one more step towards him owning his own nursery, and police could not find any reason someone would want want him dead. The investigation looked into the usual suspects, his girlfriend Mary Ann, anyone from her past, people from Daniel's past and present, but investigators could not find a motive for the killing. It was clear someone wanted Daniel dead, but all the typical motives, love, money, drugs, revenge, etc., led nowhere. So, again, you might have some of the reason, I guess, or the idea behind the killing, in this case, a murder for hire. That doesn't mean you understand why Daniel was targeted. And, you know, when I first read this story and I started looking at this growing, I was assuming that there may be some connection to marijuana, that he was known to have this really. Good green thumb for growing things, but I read every article I could find that just indicated he seemed to be just growing plants and trees and shrubs and typical stuff you would buy from a nursery. So, as far as I could find, there was no history, there was no arrests. Nothing like that for growing marijuana, which is just in my mind, if I came across a guy that was living in the living room of a nursery, doesn't have his own place, but has this reputation for being able to grow things, I would assume that there was some connection in his past where there would be drugs involved, mainly in this case marijuana, and this is 2006, so this is well before most states have made marijuana legal to some capacity. So investigators are gonna have to go down that that angle, at least in this case. Now, again, from every article I read, there's nothing in his history, no criminal history, at least nothing significant enough to report on. So they're looking at this guy who has a, as far as I can tell, a squeaky clean background, There's no indicators as to why somebody would want him dead. Again, they're going to look into Marianne. They're going to look into, does Marianne have a a significant other that has jealousy issues or has been stalking her or anything along those lines? But even that wouldn't make as much sense, I guess, maybe in a murder for hire situation where somebody in Marianne's life would hire somebody to kill Daniel in this case. But they're going to look into all this and every Avenue they pursue is going to end up in a dead end. So that's going to take about six months of looking into all these different possible reasons why somebody might want Daniel dead. But it's going to be around six months in the investigation that they realize that the reason they can't find any motive for killing Daniel is because there's another Daniel Ott out there who's also living in Northeast Ohio that is a much more likely target. So this daniel ott in 2006 was a 67 year old man and as i mentioned he had a much larger target on his back this daniel Ott was known as one of ohio's most prolific car thieves and had spent most of his adult life either stealing cars trying to steal cars or in prison life of crime for this daniel and and i think for pretty much the next 20 or 30 minutes of this episode we're going to be referring to the older daniel I know this episode is a little confusing because you have a victim and another potential victim with the same name. But just keep in mind, unless I go back and reference the original murder victim, uh, I'll, be, I'll be talking about Daniel Ott from here on out. So the life of crime for Daniel began when he was around 13 years old, when in 1950, the teenager stole a 1936 Plymouth. Someone had left the keys in the car and the lure of driving the coupe was too strong. For two weeks, he used the stolen car to deliver the newspapers on his morning route and parked it in a field to hide it at the end of each day. Eventually, the authorities recovered the car, and Daniel resisted the urge to steal another one for a couple of decades. Around 30 years old, Daniel opened a bar in Cleveland named Red's Tavern. He had been given the nickname Red for his ginger locks that he proudly grew out during the 1960s. It was at his bar that Daniel would meet and serve many of Cleveland's well-known criminals during the late 60s and early 70s. When the Hells Angels moved into Cleveland and began a campaign of murder and bombings, they often hung out at Red's Tavern. One man was murdered in the bar after claiming to be a member of the Hells Angels, but it was discovered that he was not truly a member. Daniel covered for the club and was said that the founder of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels, Sonny Barger, once stopped at Red's Tavern and thanked Daniel with a $300 tip. So basically, Red's Tavern became this well-known hangout for criminal types and especially Hell's Angels bikers. And I guess as a result of that, some guy, and I think he was even from California, came in wearing, I don't know if it was full colors of Hell's Angels, but he was definitely trying to pass himself off as a member of the Hell's Angels. And when word of this got out, the true members of the hell's angels showed up to the tavern they told daniel to call them the next time this guy comes in so he did and these guys beat this guy to death inside the bar and and it was said that the guys then just tried to leave and daniel was like hey at least take the body with you get rid of it don't just leave it in the in the bar for me to take care of so he definitely was willing to look the other way he was definitely willing to provide a place for these guys to hang out and drink and plan their crimes and that kind of stuff Um, and he had some sway enough to be able to convince them to to take this murder victim with them uh, instead of just leaving at the bar and then you've got one of the the most famous hell's angels of all time stopping by supposedly uh, i think it was in the early 70s and giving red a 300 dollars tip to thank him for helping out the club And while Daniel's running this bar, he'd been committing low-level crimes for his friends on the side, but everything kind of changed when he purchased a 1969 Corvette from an associate and then tried to trade it in because the car that he purchased was stolen and he was able to escape the charges by claiming he didn't know it was stolen when he bought it, which led him to track down the sellers and found they were operating a poorly run chop shop in Cleveland. So as the story goes... Daniel buys this Corvette from an associate. Now most of his friends and associates at this point in his life are all criminals so he probably got a sweetheart deal on this Corvette that should have indicated to him that it was stolen but the law is pretty clear when it comes to things like stolen vehicles that if you make a legal purchase on that item and you don't know that that item is stolen you can't be criminally charged for it. Now you are going to still lose that vehicle they are still going to take the vehicle from you and then if you lost money in the deal it's going to be up to you to go take that other person to civil court to get your money back but the police can't come after you unless they somehow know that you knew that that vehicle was stolen so it's very likely that daniel knew this corvette was stolen but he was hoping because he actually did a trade-in with it towards a different vehicle and i believe he was driving all the way to california in this other vehicle and the dealership somehow got a hold of him and said hey you got to come back and we got to work on some more paperwork and when he came back that was when the police were waiting and of course doing one of their questions is going to be hey did you know this corvette was stolen as soon as he says no i had no idea he's out from any criminal charges but you know this associate that sold him the corvette had to know This wasn't going to end well for him. And Daniel's able to track this guy down to this poorly run chop shop in which he purchased the vehicle. And instead of taking his revenge, Daniel's actually going to learn how this business of the chop shop operates because he sees a chance to make a lot more money than he's making just running this bar. And so he modernizes the chop shop, and soon he was stealing, flipping, and selling vehicles all over the United States within a couple of years it was rumored that he was making the equivalent of two hundred thousand dollars a month in today's money then he obtained his pilot's license and bought three planes to facilitate the business and he later admitted to stealing and selling four planes during his business dealings and daniel's business stole anything that could be easily flipped and sold and made a lot of money stealing and selling heavy equipment from construction sites so his bread and butter and we're going to talk about it here in a little bit is corvettes but he realizes the, the big overhead the the stuff that you can sell for big dollars is and, and is relatively easy to steal i mean it, he knew what he was doing he had ways to make keys for things he ha, had no issues breaking and entering so he would get a crew and they would go into a construction site and break into usually the foreman's trailer that had all the heavy equipment keys and literally overnight would just remove all of the, the heavy equipment. And you're talking, in some cases, they're tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment that you're able to sell for relatively a low-cost operation to, to get these items. And you do that a few times a month. And you have multiple people doing this for you. And then you're flipping thing, or stealing and flipping things like planes. It's not hard to imagine that he's getting to the equivalent of $200,000 a month in today's money running this this theft and shop shop business. And while the bulk of his money was made from stealing the big ticket items, Daniel had a love for stealing Corvettes. The sports car was an icon and in 1984 one one in six of the cars manufactured that year would end up being stolen somewhere in the United States. This definitely pleased car thieves but made owning and insuring the cars difficult. Afraid of the negative image and how it would affect sales, Chevy developed enhanced security features in 1986, and the improvements meant a major reduction in thefts. And this is something we see not just in America. I remember watching a TV show, they were talking about a car in England, I think it was the Cosworth, that was a super popular car for thieves to steal think because it could even outrun the the law enforcement vehicles so if you stole it and then they fo- even found you in it they couldn't catch you and it was something about how many of those were stolen and how it became just it cost more to insure it than the vehicle was even worth because it was almost guarantee that it was going to be stolen so again while this is great for car thieves and great for people like daniel ott it's not great for the people who want to buy and own and insure this vehicle, it's not great for insurance companies, and it's not great for Chevy overall because you know they put a lot of money into the uh, research and development and the marketing and, and all that stuff of this vehicle, and if you're not having people buy it because they're afraid of it getting stolen, you have to adapt and overcome, and in this case, this is how we get more and more enhanced security features. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting in 1986 and that major reduction in thefts may have especially in the ohio area may have also been the result of daniel ott spending much of the 1980s in state and federal prisons for crimes related to his chop shop and illegal business dealings his list of crimes is as impressive impressive as it is infuriating he once stole a prized cow worth thousands of dollars just to butcher it for meat He stole a car filled with Bibles and one filled with wedding gifts and cash for a couple on their honeymoon. He kept the cash, roughly $20,000 worth in today's money. And his most audacious crime was stealing an FBI surveillance van filled with equipment, a crime that would put him in the crosshairs of one of the most powerful law enforcement agencies in the world. Daniel would later come out, especially as we're going to see this story kind of progress, And he's going to say that he never harmed anybody. He never physically harmed anybody. And and while that's true, he left kind of a wake of depression behind him with all of these crimes. I mean, if you can imagine, in this case, the couple and the wedding, equivalent of $20,000 today, whether that's going to be used as a down payment on a house, whether that's going to help cover the cost of the wedding, whatever it might be. He doesn't even need this money. He's making $200,000 a month. And he takes money from from this couple that basically probably set back their first couple years of their marriage as a result. And so while he's going to come out later, it's going to be true that he never, at least that anybody knows, of physically harmed anybody during any of his crimes. He's definitely somebody that is extremely low on the moral thermometer when it comes to how they treat other people. And I could go on and on about Daniel's life of crime, but for the sake of focusing on the main crime at the center of today's episode, we'll fast forward to the late 1990s and Daniel's cancerous spread of associates. After spending time in prison, Daniel had learned the currency of investigating crimes was information. He had connections with criminals from all sorts of backgrounds, and that information was valuable to the right investigator. A well-placed phone call was his literal get-out-of-jail-free card from the Monopoly board game. But Daniel's criminal history meant most of his dealings with the law enforcement were kept off the books. He operated on more of a trust system in which he trusted that giving investigators certain information about current criminal activity would buy him favor down the road. Often his favors would run out and he was forced to call investigators to make deals as he himself was under investigation. What Daniel's going to learn through his time in prison and, and meeting uh, some other more organized criminals is that if you're willing to sell people out if you're willing to be a snitch you can keep yourself either out of prison or severely reduce the the prison sentences that you're looking at because as i mentioned daniel's not committing persons crimes and in the world of law enforcement and investigations while property crimes obviously do affect people as i just mentioned earlier persons crimes tend to affect people both at a greater level and for a longer amount of time you can get over losing money you can get over somebody stealing your car i'm not saying that shouldn't affect you or that you have to get over it immediately but those types of things you can kind of move past whereas things like sexual assault a serious assault anything along those lines where you have to spend time recovering you likely will end up with some form of ptsd person's crimes just tend to be investigated more. There's more weight put into those types of crimes and and more weight into catching the people behind those types of crimes. So Daniel's going to learn, hey, I'm not committing those types of crimes. I'm committing crimes against businesses, construction companies, car dealerships, some, yeah, obviously some against individuals themselves, but for the most part, I'm not hurting anybody. But I have information on murders and bombings and sexual assaults and gang stuff and he's able to turn that information that he has through his connections with the bar through his connections with his known associates into sellable information to law enforcement now in most cases in order for that to work especially in today's world, you have to be what's called a certified confidential informant. So you have to be somebody with information that's trusted and you can't have a significantly serious criminal history. And because Daniel did, that meant that most of his stuff that he was working with, with law enforcement was not exactly sanctioned by the courts or by administration police department administrations. It was more of a you know, a, phone, a properly placed phone call with some information. That information is vetted and made to look like it came from a different source or that somebody just stumbled across that information. For example, there was one time that he was being investigated for something and he put in a phone call and said, hey, just so you know, I've got somebody you're looking at for, I think it was millions of dollars worth of embezzlement or fraud or something like that sitting in the passenger seat of my car i think he had gotten out used a pay phone to basically call the police said if, if you want this guy i'll give him to you and the information and basically they sent a squad car out to pull over daniel's vehicle they end up arresting the guy in the passenger seat i think yeah it was for something like fraudulent cashier's checks or something like that in the millions of dollars and then they arrested Daniel to make it look like, you know, it was just a routine traffic stop. The, the cops get the information, some evidence they need to put this other guy away. And Daniel, for whatever he was being investigated for at the time that was a much smaller crime, you know, they end up just squashing that investigation. So it's just how he operated for most of the 90s. He's, he had no problems being a snitch, turning in people. Uh, it was said that he would even turn in rival biker gangs, as long as it wasn't the Hells Angels. So he was smart enough not to cross the Hells Angels, and he actually had the backing of the Hells Angels. So when he turned in criminal associates of other biker gangs, you know that actually helped the Hells Angels to a certain degree. So as long as he didn't cross that line and he claims he never did, he didn't have to worry about the Hells Angels coming after him. And I, I think he probably had a little bit of protection from the Hells Angels coming back his way as well, that if somebody went after him they were going after a cooperating partner of the Hells Angels and they could face some retribution. So he was sitting in kind of a sweet spot. He knew he could call law enforcement to get out of any trouble. He knew he was somewhat untouchable because of his criminal connections and that's how he kind of got through the 90s, staying mostly out of prison and continuing to to run his criminal enterprise. However, when the 31-year-old Daniel Ott was killed, it was a plethora of previous circumstances that led to his senseless loss of life. In the years prior to the murder, the older and and criminal Daniel Ott had been working with another career criminal named Joseph Rosebrook. Joseph desired Chevy Corvettes, and Daniel Ott was the man to procure them. Daniel had adapted his crimes and due to security upgrades in the vehicles he often duplicated the keys during test drives or flat out took the car for a test drive and didn't return. As he gets into the early 2000s yes car security features have improved but he's got a whole slew of ways in which he can get these cars off the lots and he's in his early 60s now so he can dress the part of a you know, rich guy who's got money to burn and just wants to buy a Corvette and with cash. And these unsuspecting car dealerships might give him the car for a test drive and he never returns. And of course, he's given them a, a bad ID or something to hold as collateral that's not worth anything eventually. And so he's able to rather easily grab these Corvettes despite the security upgrades by basically circumventing different Security protocols and procedures at car dealerships. Uh, he would also commit burglaries and Steal the keys for the cars duplicate the keys and then the next day He'd show up and just drive the car off the lot. Uh, so he, he had many different ways of of getting these Corvettes and Joseph Rose ran one of the largest and most successful chop shops in Northeast Ohio and had built a criminal empire over decades using high organization and ruthless tactics. As mentioned before, the world of investigation runs on information and Joseph knew his entire empire operated on the inability for law enforcement to get information about his business. So what he did was he took his chop chop empire and he compartmentalized it to the point that one part of the operation did not know how the other part operated. This meant that no one had enough information to take down his entire empire at once and any leaks or weak spots could be dealt with quickly. And this is important because when you have a crime, especially a highly organized type of crime, whether it be these chop shops or uh, stuff that the mafia or the mob do, unless you have somebody that is aware of all parts of the operation and how they function, you can't really do a full investigation and you can't hit all the elements of the crime in order to get prosecution so joseph's got guys going out and just stealing cars for him if those guys get busted he's going to quickly know who turns on him because it's only going to be the guys bringing him cars or the most recent cars or a specific car if he gets in trouble or investigator looked at whatever might be then he's got his guys in the shop that are taking off vins and and doing all this other stuff to flip the cars get them ready for sale Obviously, they don't know where the cars are coming from, so they don't know that part of the operation. And then you would have other people that would do the deliveries of, of these vehicles. So you make sure that nobody had an idea of how a car got from a car dealership lot to a point of sale all the way through. And this protected him from anybody being able to testify against him as to, I know how the entire operation works and as early as 1983 joseph had developed a strategy for handling leaky situations when one of his workers was picked up on charges related to the business he found out that that employee agreed to turn state's evidence against him so two days prior to the trial date that was set for june 13th 1984 the criminal turned witness almost died when his van exploded after he started up in his driveway after months in the hospital the witness finally testified he was so upset about the attempt on his life that the trial was declared a mistrial and joseph went untouched for another 15 years so again a specific leak weak point is identified because that person doesn't know everything about the organization yes joseph's in a little bit of hot water as part of this investigation but he quickly realizes he can just silence this leak this weak point the investigation falls apart And it sends a message to anybody else in the organization that if they get busted, they better keep their mouth shut or they could be blown up or killed. And so, again, whether or not just nobody got busted or nobody's afraid to turn against them, after this 1984 attempted murder, he's able to keep everything under the radar for the most part. And in 1999, another associate of Joseph was arrested and agreed to testify against his boss. After the failed assassination attempt, Joseph was taking no chances and is believed he made the 18-year-old former employee disappear. The teenager was never seen or heard from again. Yeah, in 1984, he tries to silence somebody with a car bomb, and it doesn't work, And so, but he's able to get this mistrial because the person is so sh- shook up by the fact that they were almost killed. So the next time he has a leak, he's not going to rely on a bomb or... You know, some, something like that he's going to have somebody likely kidnap this associate kill them put their body where nobody's ever going to find it and he's able to just once again curtail the investigation by committing a crime against somebody who was going to testify against him. so five years later in 2004 authorities had built enough of a case against joseph to raid his residence to finalize their case the evidence found in the search warrant along with witness testimony would send joseph To prison for a lengthy period of time. Daniel Ott was getting paid at the time it was $1,200 for each Corvette that he delivered to Joseph and around the time of the raid Joseph reached out to Daniel and offered him ten times that amount to have a witness against him killed. Now this is where the story divides depending on who you want to believe. Daniel told the reporters that he had already accepted the deal when he learned that federal authorities had a wiretap on Joseph's phone and investigators approached him and offered him a deal. Now investigators would say that Daniel once again found himself in hot water for committing a crime, and he offered information about the murder for hire as a chance to get out of his current trouble. Either way, Daniel agreed to confirm the contract killing via a recorded line in order to implicate Joseph in serious criminal activity, and then Daniel was looking at getting the charges against him dropped. So as a part of them investigating Joseph, of course, they're going to develop some evidence against Daniel Ott for... Stealing and delivering these Corvettes. Now, they're depending on who you want to believe. Daniel is saying, as a part of this raid, they put a wiretap on the phone. He got caught in these wiretaps talking about killing a witness, and then he got approached by investigators who said, "Hey, don't obviously don't kill that guy, but if you work with us, here's the evidence we have against you. If you work with us, this evidence goes away." Now, I don't know that it makes a huge difference, and, and I don't know why one story or why there are two stories about this, but the end result is that once again, Daniel agrees to work with investigators. He's going to get the evidence that they need to confirm that Joseph Rosebrook is trying to have a witness killed with information that they've built in their case against him. So now, after decades of trying to bring charges against Joseph Rosebrook, investigators and prosecutors and now succeeded in charging the career criminal, and the end result was that he had a 10-year prison sentence. The decade behind bars was not well received by the ruthless Joseph, and he immediately began plotting his revenge. With a lot of time on his hands, Joseph began talking to fellow inmates from his home county of Logan in Ohio, and he eventually made a 41-year-old man named Chad South an offer that he couldn't refuse. Chad was set to be released from prison soon, and once he was a free man, it was his job to locate and terminate Daniel Ott. Payment for the murder would be given to Chad by Joseph's brother, Jeff. By May of 2006, Chad was outside prison walls and had tracked down Daniel Ott. Investigators believe Chad struggled to find the older Daniel Ott because that Daniel Ott was a career criminal, and was known to most people as Red, and he was protected by the Hells Angels. So there are some people that believe Chad knew the younger Daniel Ott was the wrong target, but believed he could still work out a way to get paid as Joseph was behind bars and wouldn't be able to confirm the wrong Daniel Ott had been killed. I I don't believe that. I I think that this guy was just inept enough that the first Daniel Ott that he was able to confirm existed in the Cleveland area was the guy that Joseph was going to pay him to kill. Now he's half the age of the guy that Joseph is paying him to kill so I have to imagine that something should have been triggering him to know that he was killing the wrong person and if he did and his idea was if I just kill this guy it's not like Joseph's not going to figure out eventually the wrong Daniel Ott was killed so it's it's hard to tell if this was truly a case of mistaken identity or if this was just a case of somebody being so bad at making decisions in their life that they end up killing the wrong person either on purpose or I don't even know it's 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 hard because again it's not like they're five years apart and both look similar and it's truly a case of mistaken identity that they could eventually figure out this Chad guy honestly killed the wrong person thinking he was killing the right person there's enough differences here to make one believe he should have known but then if he if he knew how did he think this was going to go he's going to kill somebody that he knew didn't need to die it just that part of the story has never really been flushed out and regardless of the amount of knowledge he had about the mistaken identity investigators knew it was chad south who'd been the intruder who killed 31 year old daniel ott during the morning hours of may 26 2006 but investigating this linking the crime to Joseph Rosebrook was not going to be easy. Investigators were dealing with a suspect in Joseph who was an expert in witness intimidation and the vast majority of people were afraid to discuss anything involving the incarcerated suspect with law enforcement. It took almost 10 years of building evidence, all of it circumstantial, and most of it based off jailhouse informants, which is one of the most unreliable forms of evidence, to bring a case against Chad South and Joseph Rosebrook, for the 2006 murder of 31-year-old Daniel Ott and the conspiracy to commit murder against the much older Daniel Ott. So we actually do still have two crimes here. The conspiracy to murder relates to the older, the criminal Daniel Ott. The actual murder is the younger, the 31-year-old Daniel Ott. So they're actually gonna go on trial for conspiring to kill one and actually killing the other. And both men took their cases to jury trials, hoping to beat the charges based on the fact that most of the evidence was witness testimony. Chad South was the first to go on trial, and prosecutors used another suspect in the crime who was the alleged driver to build their case. Mindy Stanifer, who was around 27 at the time of the murder, was originally charged with Daniel's murder, but under a plea agreement in which she agreed to plead guilty and testify against Chad, she took a lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter and various other lesser charges. And we do see this a lot. Some cases I don't always agree with it. In this case, I think this was really their only way that they were going to build a case. Is you know, we won't know probably ever if Mindy knew everything that was gonna transpire that morning that she drove Chad down there. What one person tells another, what one the other person hears that person tell them, you know, that's between those two people, I guess. So I don't know if she was completely complicit and knew hey i'm gonna drive this guy down to this place and he's gonna kill somebody it could also just be as simple as she drove him knowing something was gonna bad was gonna happen but didn't think it was gonna be a murder but because she drove him there police have enough to take her to trial for the murder and if they can find anybody that could testify that she knew that In driving Chad down there, there was a murder was going to occur. She's just as culpable for the murder. So she's looking at some serious, serious time in prison. So she's willing to testify against Chad for some much reduced charges and sentences. uh, And that's going to provide a lot of the evidence the jury is going to need to hear in order to and convict chad so she testified during chad's trial that on the day of the murder she drove chad south to burton township where daniel ott lived and chad went to the house and murdered the innocent and incorrect daniel mindy's testimony along with those of jailhouse informants and investigators convinced a jury that chad was responsible for the death of daniel ott and in 2016 the judge sentenced chad to a life sentence with a minimum of 28 years to serve before being eligible for parole he was ultimately sentenced for first-degree murder two counts of kidnapping possession of a weapon by a convicted felon and other charges a few months later the trial for joseph rosebrook took place this trial would be a little trickier for prosecutors and judges as that they had to walk many fine lines to prevent a mistrial or successful appeal after a conviction normally a defendant's prior criminal history is not admissible in court unless there is a direct correlation to the current charges For example, just because someone has stolen a thousand cars, that fact cannot be used against them in court in front of a jury as evidence against a current auto theft charge. And this is the part of the Constitution, innocent until proven guilty, part of a fair and impartial trial. We all have the right to change our lives, to start making better decisions. And so prior history is not evidence of a of what they're potentially facing at that trial so as i mentioned if a corvette goes missing in the northeast ohio area they can't just put daniel out on trial and say hey this guy has stolen 250 corvettes in his life now we have a corvette missing it's likely going to be him you have to have other evidence and in the case of a trial like that you can't even mention to the jury that he's stolen 250 corvettes before you're going to get a mistrial now there are exceptions to this. And like in the case of Joseph Rosebrook, his attempt to hire Daniel Ott to kill a previous witness was germane to the current charges of him trying to have Daniel Ott killed. So this is, has a fine line of introducing those facts without manipulating the jury. Or this fine line had to be carefully walked by the judges and the prosecutors. So again, you can't just... You can't say that Joseph wanted to kill Daniel without giving a reason for it. The reason for it is because daniel worked with investigators during a previous contract to kill that that joseph had believed he had agreed with uh, with daniel so in this case he's on trial for a contract killing and so it shouldn't be that you can introduce a another attempt for him to hire somebody to kill somebody but because the two cases are connected prosecutors had to do that and they had to hope that between the jury instruction from the judge and how it was presented and the judge took a lot of time to explain to the jury that you're not to look at the previous attempt to kill him as evidence that he would try to kill somebody else you have to look at the fact that it's because he double crossed this guy that there would be a reason to kill him so again it was, there was a lot of issues that they had to be careful on the trial and even during the trial witnesses including friends and family of joseph rosebook showed genuine fear to testify in the stand some were able to avoid answering questions that would potentially implicate themselves by pleading the fifth leading to prosecutors being forced to offer immunity deals to compel the witnesses to testify under oath. so again in the american judicial system we have the plead the fifth that's the right to not self-incriminate so you cannot be put on a stand, you can't be subpoenaed to testify, put on a stand and then ask questions about your involvement in somebody else's criminal activity. And so it kind of creates this loophole if you're forcing somebody to testify, forcing them to testify under oath with fear of being arrested or charged with perjury if they lie, if what they tell you, if they if they think that that will implicate them in crimes, they get to plead the fifth, which means they don't have to talk Or answer your questions so in this case you had prosecution going out of the way to be hey whatever you say we will not prosecute you for you have complete immunity throughout your testimony here and therefore no matter what you say will not incriminate yourself against future charges. so again it was this they had to work around a bunch of legal stuff in order to get the evidence in front of the jury that the jury needed to hear And Joseph even tried to use his incarceration to prove his innocence, claiming that all phone calls are recorded and there was no evidence he was able to orchestrate the killing from behind bars. The prosecutors offered up the possibility of Joseph using a contraband cell phone, and this was argued against by the defense, but evidence from prison revealed Joseph had been caught with a contraband cell phone, making the prosecutor's allegations more likely. And for one of the cases I investigated, I was listening to jail tapes, phone calls that were being made, And the guy actually got in big trouble and he was telling his family members this because he used another guy's phone login information. They have to punch in numbers to indicate their inmate number and their passcode. And then that's how everything is sorted in the recording system. Well, he got information from another inmate. I don't know if you watched him punch in the stuff or whether he got it willingly from the other guy. But then he was making phone calls on the other guy's account and that's a big no-no because obviously if he's under investigation in this case it was for murder the investigators like myself were not listening to this other random guy's phone calls so he could be saying stuff on these other phone calls to friends and family about witness intimidation or about the murder or whatever it might be so whether it be a contraband cell phone or using somebody else's phone there are ways that prisoners can try to get information out to the world that is not traced back to them so and it does happen on various occasions so just the defense of hey i'm in prison all my phone calls are recorded all my mail is screened i didn't set up this contract killing there are ways around that so that defense on surface value sure it looks great but once you tear into it and he's got a history of having contraband cell phones it's pretty clear he had the capabilities to orchestrate this murder from behind bars and the legal quagmire existed for most of the trial but in the end justice prevailed and the jury found joseph guilty of all charges and the judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole the judge rightfully called joseph an extremely dangerous man and society is somewhat safer with him behind bars for the rest of his life The surviving Daniel Ott claims to have survived numerous attempts on his life around the time the younger Daniel was killed, but after being arrested during a massive operation in which he was found to have stolen over 14 new Corvettes worth over a million dollars in today's money, he was finally unable to evade prosecution and spent three years in prison after 2010. As of 2023, I could not locate an obituary for the older Daniel Ott, and news of him pretty much dried up for the most part after the double convictions for Chad and Joseph back in 2016. The latest article I read stated he claimed to be out of the criminal business and enjoying the good life, but many investigators believe he will commit crimes until the day he dies. As for the victim in this case, 21-year-old Daniel Ott was said to be one of the nicest and most general, gentle guys you could ever know. The kind man had a knack for understanding the needs of plants and could grow just about anything from seed to a size that it could be sold and transplanted to a new home. He was not known to commit any crimes and was only killed because he shared a name with a man who had double-crossed the wrong guy. Daniel would be 48 years old today if he was still alive and possibly a family man and the owner of his own greenhouse or nursery. His life was cut short by the decisions of several men to commit acts of theft and malice for their entire lives, and while one will face ultimate justice soon, the other two are at least behind bars for the foreseeable future. But that is the case of Daniel Ott. Thank you guys for listening, stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook, and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today guys, thanks for listening, talk to you later, goodbye.